scripture tonight from Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 8 and verses 16 through 18. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their, full re their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head, and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. I don't have to rattle off the names, but there's a really long list of well-known and anonymous people who at this stage in their lives are no longer in the careers or the sports or the callings, or the jobs that their lives used to revolve around in the years prior. Included on this list would be, uh, in addition to ordinary people like us, actors and actresses who got into acting for some kind of pure reason, but got jaded and dropped out later. Pro athletes, politicians, entrepreneurs, musicians, pastors, and just about everything else in between. The reason that these people burned out, sold out, or dropped out is that somewhere along the way, somewhere over the years, they lost sight of why they were doing what they were still doing. So they drifted into a life of still doing all the same things they'd always done, but losing sight of why. Their motivation had shifted. So, for example, and you can think of plenty of names as I tell these kind of generic examples, but the musician who got into music and live performance because she loved seeing the way her lyrics helped people make sense of their stories and their lives, and it really brought life to her. She loved the way melodies that she wrote turned into a venue full of tapping feet and the burdens that lifted. But maybe she looks up five or ten years later and she feels icky. She's like, how did this become about just getting bigger venues or the next venue or more ticket revenue? And just the pressure to keep releasing new songs even though they're not coming out of my heart anymore. Her motivation has shifted and she's burning out. Think about another genre. Think about the biomedical entrepreneur who started a pharmaceutical company. And the reason he started the company was his dad died of some seemingly curable disease when he was a little kid. And he grew up ever since then as a little kid knowing, 
I don't want other little kids to have to go through growing up without a dad when dad could have been cured by a little more research or a little more medicine. And so he started that company. He poured his life and he poured his heart into it. 20 years later, he's climbed the corporate ladder and he's near the top. And he can't even with a good conscience look at himself in the mirror when he shaves in the morning anymore because he wonders, how did that pure motivation, how did my passion turn into just maintaining a certain stock price so these anonymous investors are happy or keeping the board of directors happy? His motivation shifted too and he's ready to sell out or burn out or drop out. And when you add the stories of the politician who got into politics to do good and to help people, but now just raises money to win the next election, they feel burned out or they feel sold out. The athlete, the pastor who got into ministry to help people, but now wonders why he spends his day putting out fires with grumbling people or answering emails. And they really don't know why they drive into work anymore. And they're ready to throw in the towel too. All of these people were doing the same things that they'd always done, but they lost all sense of why they were still doing it. There was a hollowness to their lives that resulted from that, and a sense that you and I are very familiar with of just going through the motions. It's like when your body is still doing things, but your heart long ago stopped doing it, and you're wondering, why am I doing this? So they still do those things that they've always done, and they still say things that they used to really believe deep down, but now they feel like imposters when they say it. They feel like frauds when they say it. They don't feel like it's as genuine with what they used to think or what they used to be passionate about. It's as if Jesus is asking those burned-out entrepreneurs, actresses, athletes, pastors, professors, and you and I, why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you still driving into school every morning? What has life become for you? And I guess more specifically we could say because of this passage, um, do you remember, he might ask us, do you remember why you're following me? Do you remember why you are listening to me? Do you remember why you come to stuff like this? Do you remember why you obey me? On the face of it, what Marshall read earlier and what you have in front of you seems like a generic rebuke or hand wrist slapping about just kind of generic hypocrisy. You would expect that kind of thing maybe from God, like don't say you're one person but be another. Don't you know, pr uh, present yourself as one thing when really you're another thing. Don't live a double life. Don't be a hypocrite. You would think that's what this passage is about. I mean, the word hypocrite appears a few times, but I think that would be a clumsy kind of second-rate interpretation of the passage that would ignore some of the details that gives us clues to what's really going on here. So instead of a generic rebuke about us being hypocrites, I think Jesus has set his sights on something much narrower, much more specific, and that hits much closer to home for everybody in the room myself included. And I think this is what he's saying. Disciples, he's talking to his people, be careful. 
watch out, be on guard, because just like those CEOs and musicians and athletes, we're in danger of drifting into the same burnout, dropping out, selling out. Because this detachment of still doing things we used to do and were passionate about and loved and believed in, but now doing it without any of that. So, when we find ourselves doing these things, we still are doing these kind of outward, outward things, except without the joy or the motivation or the hope that was there before. Spirituality will become somewhat of a game to you, like a, a, a keeping up of appearances, a going through the motions. And again, I think that's the kind of hypocrisy Jesus is talking about. It, I had to really kind of dive deep into this because that's not what I typically think of hypocrisy, right? I typically think of it in the more superficial way that I've talked about a second ago, but I think he's talking about almost unintentional or accidental hypocrisy that we slowly drift into, not the people who are self-consciously living the double life. But when we get to this place where there's a detachment of we're still doing the things we used to do, we're still talking the ways we used to talk, we're still going through the rhythms we used to go through, but without any hope or motivation or joy or faith or anticipation, spirituality will just become a meaningless, lifeless rhythm. So how do we slide into selling out, burning out, dropping out in the ways that Jesus is talking about? That, that's a key question that we should start with. How does this happen? To disciples. Remember, he's talking to his people, to, to disciples. We shift audiences. And, um, and I'll, I'll show you where this comes from in the passage in a minute, but, but hear that. How does the shift of motivation happen? We shift audiences from living before God, living before a, a, a gracious audience of one, and shifting to living before a critical audience of many, a critical audience of people, of the crowd. And from shifting from the permanent attention that God has freely given us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to the flaky, temperamental attention of our social circles. So where do we see it in the passage? Because we need to see it there if we're going to sink our teeth into this. Um, little aside, and a fun little tidbit after you've already taken your midterms. This could have been useful a few weeks ago. It was through my, halfway through my second graduate degree that I f felt like I finally figured out how to predict what the professor was always going to put on the test. And then I would just study that material because I like, didn't have time to study at all. So I was like, I'm just going to study what I think is going to be on the test. Risky strategy. But it more often than not paid off because I just listened to what keeps coming up in class, what do they keep repeating, like what's the overlap between the articles and the books and the lectures and the questions. Like you can tell what's on their heart and mind, what they think is most important by what they repeat. Same with the Bible when you're trying to understand a passage on its terms. What does Jesus think is most important? What's he most stressing in these words to us? The two most frequently repeated things that he talks about in these verses are the two audiences that you and I are prone to live in front of and to live for. Um, your trans the translation on the page, NIV, says others. If you highlighted or circled it, you'd see it five or six times, living before others. Other uh, translations will say living before people and their opinion of you. 
And then the second audience that appears about seven times that Jesus talks about is the Father, or better yet, your Father. Because again, he's talking to his disciples, your Father. So those are the two options of audiences that a human being can live before, can live your life in service to. God the Father, I, I should say this, God your Father, if you know him to be your Father, or if you don't know God as your Father, you're consigned to living your life before a critical crowd whose, whose approval and attention you're always trying to earn and keep. And even for Christians, Jesus is saying, even if God is your father and you, right now you're living your life uh, before an audience of one and under his delight, under his pleasure, knowing you have his attention, Jesus is saying, watch out, be careful, because even for you, your heart can slip into living for this crowd as well. So that's how we lose this, lose this motivation and kind of keep going through the motions even though our heart's not in it, but why? Like, why does this little sequence of events or this pattern happen? I'll give you a quick little quote um, first to kind of give you a concise answer and then we'll flesh it out from the passage. Sinclair Ferguson, um, great theologian, great author, he said, Jesus is hinting that the real trouble with the heart of the hypocrite is that they don't know God as their heavenly father. They're insecure before God because they don't know him as father and therefore they seek security in what their fellow men or women think of them. That's the reason the shift happens. Feeling insecurity there, we seek that security with the next closest thing to God on this planet, which is his image bearers, which is the, the people in the room or the people in your social circles. But how would a disciple, how would a follower of Jesus, how would someone maybe like you shift audiences and slide from maybe one year of your life happily living before a, an audience of a loving father and sliding into living before the audience of your friend's approval or the world's approval or a professor's approval or a parent's approval? Here's how I think it happens from the passage. How does it happen? When you think God doesn't see you anymore. Particularly when you think he doesn't see you in secret. Uh, when you think he doesn't see you in the ordinary ins and outs of whatever your life is right now. When we lose sight of how God our Father pays attention to us, even in secret, you'll go public seeking attention elsewhere. When you forget how he pays gracious attention to you, even in private, you and I will go public seeking that attention elsewhere seeking that embrace, seeking that approval, seeking that acceptance in other places. And, and that's um, psychology 101. I mean, you know the pattern with like little kids. They say little kids who don't receive healthy attention in the home, what do they do? They go seek that attention elsewhere by any means, acting out in class, getting in trouble, unhealthy relationships. They'll settle for any attention in that deficit of healthy, true, loving attention, right? That's the cause and effect. When we don't seek, when we don't receive that in the proper way, we go out and seek it elsewhere. Now I said, what else, what other evidence do we have from the passage from the paper in front of you that this is actually what Jesus is saying and not just something that I'm putting in the passage to make a point? Well, here's where. Once in verse four, once in verse six, once in verse 8, and twice in verse 18, 
Jesus bends over backwards to correct the record from our shifty hearts. And he says, you know, I said earlier, seven times he talks about your father, but he doesn't just leave it at your father. He says, your father, parentheses, who sees you in secret. So Jesus isn't just saying, take heart, you have a father. You have a father who sees you. In verse uh, 8, you have a father who knows you. And he, he is so attentive to you that he knows what you need, even at times when you don't know what you need. He knows what you need before you've stumbled on a realization of that need. You're on his radar. You're on his mind. You're on his thoughts. You're in his heart. You have his approval. To use the f language from Fall Conference in Colossians that uh, Josh Garrett used that was really hit home with a lot of us, God has qualified you. The audience that you live your life before um, approves and applauds because he's hidden you in his beloved Jesus. So Jesus says, um, you have his attention. We have his attention. And when we forget it, we go on a heart-sick search in other places trying to get it. We'll either try to manipulate God to get that attention, or we'll go manipulate other people to get the attention. Verse 7, Jesus is talking about the way the godless or the Gentiles, those who do not know God as Father, the way that they pray is a ritualistic way. Some cadence, some memorized prayer that's said in the right tone, with the right passion, with the right worship music in the background to kind of get in the mood and, sh and earn God's attention and say, see, I feel it, I want you. He says that's, that's manipulation. It's heaping up empty phrases or going through some kind of dog and pony show to try and earn the attention of a God that if you are in Jesus is already yours. And we manipulate other people too. And this is where the, the language of hypocrisy comes up in the passage where we will even use, even kind of walk with God in such a way to get admiration and respect and like credit and points with other people, where we'll earn their attention too. And we don't need um, me to tell you or yourself to tell you or anybody else to tell you that the attention that we end up kind of forsaking with God and going and seeking horizontally with other people doesn't last long and, um, and, and really doesn't stick around. Jesus's argument here isn't don't seek the approval of other people because it doesn't work. He actually says it does work. You will be rewarded. If you, um, if you kind of are going through these religious or spiritual motions, you're showing up to this, you're praying, you're doing whatever, you're kind of dropping little hints about the mission trip you went on or the times you feed the poor, like you're doing this to be seen by others, to manipulate and get the admiration and respect or approval or acceptance or attention of other people. He says you actually will be rewarded by that. You will get the admiration you seek. You will get the respect. Your stock will rise in the eyes of your friends. But he's saying, so what? How does that leave you better off? Because he says several times in this passage, that's the fullness of your reward. That's all the reward will be. That's the ceiling of the reward. And let's be honest about the approval of other people. Um, it's got a shelf life about as long as milk. Because all it takes is one 
bad mistake in an area your friends really care about, or one juicy piece of gossip about you that they listen to and start sharing around your friend group without you, or one bad experience, one mistake, and that approval is gone, and sometimes forever. And so living in, this, in service to others' approval, living before that audience, when our life is a stage and we're just kind of constantly trying to get other people to nod and say, you do matter, you know, like, you do belong. You're, like, you're pretty great in my book. It's an exhausting and exasperating way to live because all of us know that approval spoiling, and I gotta up it and renew it to keep the attention or to keep it good. And so where does all this leave us? If we're lucky, just burned out. At best, just burned out. Still going through the motions, doing the things we've always done, except without the joy, the delight, the passion, the motivation, the energy that we once knew. Um, and I guess with a, with a sneaking suspicion that we're imposters. That's at best. At worst, um, sold out or dropped out. Increasingly clueless self-promoters. We've learned how to play the game successfully, and we believe it. Like we've mistaken other people's accolades about us, and now that's replaced what's actually true about us. People say, you're awesome. You're such a godly person. I really respect you. I really admire you. And you feel like, mm, I don't know about that. But you've heard it so many times. The crowd's opinion of you has become your opinion of you. And that's when it gets really dangerous. That we've even fooled ourselves. Or, on the other side of that, we become the victim of the crowd's verdict. What if they don't approve of you? What if you feel like you never are able to say the right things? You don't know all the quotes or all the books or all the authors that other people drop all the time and you feel like you're permanently outside and you become the victim of the crowd's opinion or you just become tired always selling yourself on the marketplace of public opinion. Either way, regardless of how it manifests in our lives, it's a tragic trade to trade the permanent, passionate attention of your good father for the patchy, temporary attention of other people. Britton Wood is a, um, he used to be the RUF campus minister at Stanford. He's an area coordinator for RUF now, and he said something, kind of gave a story or a metaphor recently that I think applies to this. I found it really helpful. He said, when we forget God's fatherly care and fatherly love for us, it turns life from a playground into a proving ground. It turns your existence here in Athens from playground, where there's a life of just kind of refreshment and breathing and joy and freedom into a proving ground that's frantic and preoccupied with yourself and preoccupied with what other people think about you, including professors, including UGA, including future employers. We're always trying to prove ourselves. Prove ourselves to God, prove ourselves to other people. And again, Jesus says, there is a reward for that. That's why this is addictive. But he says, but have you ever considered really what the reward is and is it really worth the pursuit? Verse one, if you practice your righteousness in front of others in order to be seen by them. He's not condemning people seeing you pray or people seeing you give to the homeless or people seeing you at RUF. You can't live a private life like that. He's saying, if you practice your righteousness so that, in order that, 
There's always somebody watching, recording your actions, noticing, passing word along that you're a pretty good person, that you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. He's saying you've made a decision at the fork in the road that that's going to be life and sustenance to you. And so because of that decision, you forfeit the reward that your Father in heaven will lavishly give you. So um, we've been talking for 20 minutes about this. We should get to the hope, right? Because uh, for the past several days, this has been uncomfortable and, um, I don't know, penetrating to study this and to sit under this and to think about myself too. Maybe it is for you as well. Maybe you feel some conviction one way or the other. This makes sense of some things you've been feeling lately. So what does Jesus do to help us here? Because remember, this is the Jesus who is proclaiming the good news of the kingdom before this Sermon on the Mount and right after. He is embodying the life of heaven, the kingdom of God, before and after, and healing and delivering people from oppression and forgiving people their sins. So what's in between with all of this? What hope does he give us? What good news does he have for us? This is really simple. It's very memorable. It's an easy takeaway tonight. Here it is. Remember your Father in heaven. Remember your Father in heaven. Remember the, remember the consequence and the effect of my life and my death and my resurrection and that how you now permanently possess his attention, his affection, his approval, his heart, his eyes, his ears, his care. If you feel like you're in the early or late stages of burning out or selling out or dropping out, Jesus says, flee back to him. He's still alive. Even if you feel like he's withered up and, and dead to you now, or you haven't felt him or seen him or sensed him or talked to him in ages, he is still God. And he still has eyes and he still has ears and he still has a heart and he is still love and he is still holy and he is still a savior. Flee back to him. That's Jesus's action item. And if you feel like by God's mercy, I feel like I'm living under the sunshine of his warm love right now. I'm living before an audience of one. He is my passion. He is my joy. He is my motivation in life. You get to flee back to him and say, and Father, keep it this way, because I believe you, Jesus. My heart is prone to shift, to get distracted by these other voices and these other verdicts. So regardless of where you are, you let your deeper consciousness of your need of the Father, which might have come just from tonight in this passage, you let that deeper awareness of your need for him drive you back to him, not send you out here more alone and more discouraged. That would be foolish. Jesus has saturated his words here with talk about your father, your father, your father. You can't leave here just with your own thoughts about yourself tonight. You have to leave with eyes more and more open to him and a heart more and more turned to him. And asking him and begging him to return you to your first love, to your original passion, to that delight in his goodness. And here's really where we end is this last idea of these rewards that Jesus talks about. He, he keeps talking about if you, do, if, if you give in secret, if you fast or deny yourself distracting things that take away from your focus on God, if you, if you do that in secret, 
If you pray in secret, your Father who sees you, who knows you, will reward you. And that strikes our ear a little bit um, weird sometimes because you're like, he'll reward me? Is this like a business transaction? Like, if you do these things right, there's a prize in it for you. You'll get the trophy. You'll get the sweepstakes. God will give you a shiny little thing that's going to make you really happy. Jesus is not saying that. What he's saying is that God will, through this process of practicing righteousness, which is really exercising your new heart that is yours in Christ Jesus, that is doing cardio, that is conditioning this new heart that the Spirit has worked in you. He's saying that God, through that process, will change your desires and then satisfy your desires. He'll sanctify your desires and then he'll satisfy your desires. This is why Jesus will say in, in, a, in a couple of weeks, we'll talk about the passage that comes after the Lord's Prayer when he says, why do you worry about tomorrow? And he's talking about anxiety. He says, seek first the kingdom of heaven and everything else will be added or ask anything in my name and the Father will give it to you. What he's saying is once your desires and your wants and your requests and your sense of your needs have been sanctified and now match up with what God says you were made for, what God says motivates you, what he says you need, you begin to ask him for the things that he says you need. And he gladly satisfies those things. So God will give you a greater desire for himself, a greater hunger for himself, and then he'll feed you more of his self. That's the reward. A, a, a return to a pure motive, a return to a first love, to a passion. I mean, imagine that musician who's burned out and on the road and just, you know, going to bed at four every morning and just like, why am I doing this? Imagine her having a kind of a rekindled joy and passion and love because she remembered why she does what she does. And she kind of skips the big you know, spotlighted to her and goes back to the house shows or the little venues where things were intimate, where she could talk to the crowd. The entrepreneur quits his job at the Fortune 500 company because he hates the pressure. He hates and couldn't care less about the stock price. And he goes back into research because he's refound and recaptured and rediscovered his first love. Those desires have been sanctified and then satisfied. John Stott says this, what is the reward which the Heavenly Father gives the secret giver? It's probably the only reward which genuine love wants when making a gift to the needy, to see their need relieved and their burden lifted. Somebody who loves giving simply for the sake of giving, somebody who loves giving because God is a giver, what's the greatest reward you could give them? to see with their own eyes the burden that their generosity lifted off the back of the person they gave to, to see joy come back into a house that had no joy or mobility or opportunity. There's a guy named Chuck Feeney, and you and I don't know his name like we do Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Warren Buffett, but Chuck Feeney had a goal to be broke by the time he died and he has succeeded as of last fall. He gave away the last of his money in his bank account. He gave away $8 billion over the course of the past 40 years. He's the one who started this uh, endeavor by these billionaires to give away half their income by the time they're whatever age. 
and then Bezos and all those others kind of jumped on board. He was the first, and he was doing it anonymously. He gave $270 million so Vietnam could revolutionize its healthcare industry and people could have access to life-saving interventions. He gave three or four hundred million dollars to a neighborhood in New York that was blighted and poor to make it a hub for technological development. Somebody asked him, you're the, you're, we don't know of anybody else who started giving away his wealth while he was still alive. Most people give money when they die and name a building after them. Why did you give when you were alive and now you're poor when you die? And he says, because I wanted to be alive when I gave to see what it did to the people I gave to. That's a man whose desires have been sanctified and satisfied. He gives not like, I want to give so UGA will rename their library after me. He gave in secret to help people. That's the purity of motivation that Jesus is inviting us back to. That's the purity of motivation Jesus himself has. It's the purity of motivation that the Father himself has. And this actually makes life become a heck of a lot more fun. When we, when we learn over time, and it does take practice, and it does take fighting, and it does take work, but when we learn over time to love prayer simply because prayer brings us closer into communion with a Father we want to fight to know His presence and His goodness. When we give simply for the joy of giving, when we deny ourselves things that get in our way between us and God or distract our focus simply because we want to focus, there's joy in that, and there's delight in that. You could almost say that this passage Jesus is, is giving us is really asking the question to potentially jaded or burned out or sold out or dropped out disciples or Christians, are you having fun again yet? Are you enjoying me again yet? Do you want to? Do you want to have fun walking with God? To put it in kind of street terms, um, do you want to play basketball the rest of your life because that's the place you prove yourself to all the other guys or all the other girls and make yourself look awesome? And you're so pressured with your performance on the court. Or do you want to just go play basketball because you love basketball? Do you want to write music because people tell you how awesome and thoughtful you are? Or do you want to write music because you love writing music? Do you want to tell jokes and be the funny guy in your friend group because you think life is better with laughter and people are going through hard stuff and you like to see a smile on their face? Or do you tell jokes to be the witty guy that everybody thinks is awesome and you're always performing, always proving, always manipulating, always taking? Which life is actually fun and which life is actually fake and burdensome and lifeless? This is the difference in one of those quotes that um, Josh said at fall conference as well. The two runners at that 1920s or 30s Olympics with Eric Liddell, who was the Chariots of Fire runner, and the other guy, I don't know his name, Eric Little, who knew Jesus, said, when I run, I feel the pleasure of God. It's fun. I love to run. And this is an Olympian who competed. And the other guy in the lane next to him said this, I've got 10 lonely seconds to prove my existence to myself, to the watching crowd, to God. Which life do you want to live? 
waking up to your father and his heart and his eyes and his ears and his care and his love is the pathway back to rekindling that passion and that desire. Where I want to end is a real life story of a guy who felt burned out and sold out and found this passion again. Henry Nouwen was a Catholic theologian. He's a writer. You, some of y'all have read his books. He's amazing. Um, he was your grandparents' generation. He's dead now. He taught at Notre Dame. <laughs> he taught at Notre Dame, Harvard, and Yale. He was a world-renowned scholar and author. And he quit his jobs and left to go work at a house in Vancouver for profoundly disabled people. Cognitive disabilities, developmental disabilities, physical disabilities. And nobody could figure out why. Like, he wasn't caught in scandal. He wasn't kind of losing his edge. Everyone's like, why did he quit? Like, he had the most plum jobs. Like, all the Ivy League schools had him come and talk. And he left that to go to this tiny little house in Vancouver to literally spend two hours every morning dressing, feeding, caring for, cleaning up one person along with some others. Somebody asked him, why'd you do it? And he said, everyone told me that I was doing great back when I was a professor publishing all these books, but I felt like my soul was in danger of drifting from Jesus. I knew I had to leave. And they said, well, don't you think your gifts and your experience and your education could be a little bit better used or deployed on a bigger platform than this 20-person house in Vancouver? And he laughed, and he said, no, no, no. I didn't give up anything. It's I, um, not Adam, the guy that he took care of, who gets the main benefit from my time here. He said, it's through Adam that I finally learned how God takes care of me in my mess, in my inability, in my immobility, in my permanent place of dependence and need. Nowen said in another interview, I always felt like I had two voices competing inside my head. One urged me to succeed and achieve, and the other called me simply to rest in the comfort that I am the beloved of God. And in the last years of my life, I learned to listen to that second voice. Jesus is asking you to listen to that second voice. In the midst of a culture, in the midst of a place, in the midst of a city that's asking you to prove yourself, prove yourself, and achieve, and achieve, and get the bigger platform. He's saying, could you just be content to have God, even if nobody else knew? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we uh, ask that you would help make this true of us. It was a long journey that you walked with Henry Nouwen over the years as you weaned his heart from some of the things his heart had become attached to, the, the applause of the crowd. You were so kind to him. You were so patient with him that it was in the later years of his life that you drew him back to the love of the Father. We pray that, um, would you be kind enough that maybe we wouldn't have to wait to the later years of our life to be drawn back to the kind love of your Father? that we might have pure, passionate, joyful, hopeful motivations for why we do what we do. We ask this in your name. Amen.